Welcome to the RSP Cast Film and Theory. Joining me once again, Adam Harstead. Always a pleasure, Adam, to have you on. And hope your summer's been good. I think we're going to get back at it finally after, you know, little fits and starts of what we do during the summer. I think I think when you have like this type of a format, I know for me every for the past three years, I go, yeah, we're going to do some stuff in the off season, and then and then two months go by, and it's just like, nah, fuck that. I needed a little bit of a break. And I had other things that needed to be done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, routine is a really big thing. Like, in season, like, everything's so structured because, you know, the games are every Sunday, everything's... And it's so easy to get stuff scheduled and penciled in and, like, you get rolling, you get the momentum, and then the off-season hits, and I'm the same way. I'm like, oh, I've got all this stuff to get done. But without, like, that weekly Sunday game to kind of start the whole pro the whole process over and keep the wheel rolling, it's it's just very easy to to kind of fall off yeah and and i actually honestly need the break a little bit so i appreciate the fact that those who listen in on a you know to this podcast and the, and the various podcasts that we have um you know do it with the rsp cast you know seem to be fairly understanding of that so um you know it's always about kind of balancing different things as they're in and out of season or in demand and and so you know we're gonna get rolling this week with We'll talk about maybe some offenses or players that we think maybe have some elevated odds of delivering outlier or record production um, we're going to talk a little bit about um, players who you know i'm going to call it kind of the lamar jackson bias in the sense of are there is there a situation where players entering the league have maybe are seen with a certain level of bias and then even when they um Kind of counter that bias with their production or their their play that maybe the the public perception is already so ingrained that it, it just continues to stick as a narrative um, we're going to stay in baltimore a little bit and talk about jk dobbins and his hold in um and then you know we'll, we'll stick around with running backs a little bit and the pats and the jets look at their backfields and whether or not trade glance is a dented cam as adam so articulately sh shared with us last season about dented cans or is his can crushed um and and an alterable you know they, they don't even worry about trying to recycle that sucker so um yeah rolling through here any preference of which one you want to go you want to start with adam uh no let's start from the bottom and work our way up maybe i'd, I'd love to talk about trey lance yeah um so I, I heard a report earlier in the offseason, I don't know how true this is or not, that um, San Francisco, like Trey Lance was available via trade if, if a team wanted to trade for him for like a fifth rounder. And this just gets me, I mean, I feel like 32 teams in the NFL today should be interested in Trey Lance for, if the cost is a fifth rounder. And yes, I said 32, that includes San Francisco. You know, it. I get that Kyle Shanahan has his offense that he wants to run. And it's a proven offense. It's an immensely productive offense. Um, normally, I think the best coaches fit their scheme to their available players. Kyle Shanahan kind of does his own thing, but he's got the track record where he's earned the benefit of the doubt. If he's going to do his thing and just find the players who fit, if he's producing with it and he is, then great, more power to him. And so it's entirely plausible to me that Trey Lance just isn't a fit for what Shanahan wants to do, that he can't, he just can't execute what Shanahan's looking to do here. And if that's the case, I think Shanahan would have figured it out by now. They've had 
two years to try and and make it work. Um, if he says it's not working, then okay, I believe him. But uh, like we haven't. I, I go back to Sam Darnold, who we saw him on the field with the Jets, and we saw him fail repeatedly. We saw him play poorly. We saw him failing to do the things that an NFL player needs to do to succeed at an NFL level. And the Panthers still traded. Was it like like a second and a third for him? Um, we haven't seen Lance fail. We We don't know if this is a case of Lance is not a good quarterback or if this is just a case of Lance is not a good fit for Kyle Shanahan's offense. And given how disproportionate the rewards are for hitting at quarterback, absolutely, I would trade a fifth round pick. I'd trade a fourth round pick on the bet that like, maybe he's not a bad player. Maybe he's just a bad fit. Maybe in a new situation, new surroundings, he'd thrive. I mean, you look at the the kind of quarterbacks who were taken in the fourth round, you know, like a Jared Stidham type. And I would much rather have Trey Lance after one team has given up on him than Jared Stidham. Um, and again, I don't know how true the original report was that, that teams were like not really interested in him for a fourth or a fifth rounder. Um, but if so, I think that's kind of damning of the teams themselves that they're not really thinking about that probabilistically. Yeah. I mean, I like how you put this and I, I had, um, a reader or a listener, Ben Sikorsky, you know, email me and said, you know, I heard Dan or Orlovsky say that he's that. Trey Lance is just not a good fit for for the 49ers offense. And he said, didn't Trey Lance play in a West Coast offense at North Dakota State? And then, you know, a couple days ago, I saw a clip from um, JT O'Sullivan's terrific, you know, YouTube channel, the QB School, where he does a lot of similar stuff to what I do, except he's probably a little bit more X and O's scheme heavy in terms of the jargon and the verbiage that he's going to go through. And, and he also adds the per perspective of being an NFL, former NFL player and what goes on in those rooms. Um, but he showed a clip of Trey Lance in the preseason against the Raiders where he had a wide open receiver working across the middle and on, at the top of his five-step drop and then on a second hitch. And at each time, Lance didn't throw the ball and turned away and then threw tried to go for the check down and sailed the check down. And so he talked about how brutally bad this play was and how Kyle Shanahan's probably banging his head against the wall, seeing something like this. So I think in a vacuum, if you were to look at this one play and this were indicative of Trey Lance as a player um, throughout his career, um, then yes, I would agree that that's the case. But I would also say in the context of looking at Trey Lance at North Dakota State and seeing limited play of him when he was, you know, on the field, that what we're looking at in that one play is a dented can who may be in danger of being a crushed can by Kyle Shanahan, who, when you look at Shanahan, you mentioned it very well, is that it is about his scheme over tailoring the scheme to the player. And this is a common thing that quarterback coaches who work with NFL and top college players have told me over the past five years. Um, Will Hewlett's one of them who trained Brock Purdy, worked with Brock Purdy, um, and he has both solicited scouting reports from both JTL Sullivan and myself um, on Brock Purdy to look at film and then work with Purdy after that um, 
looking at those uh, those reports so you know this is someone who's worked with you know a number of guys and he said listen he goes a lot of often west coast offensive coaches have a reputation for seeing their offense as kind of an extension of them and that the players are there to almost he said you know i'm not quoting him directly but kind of robotically execute it in the way that it's like a video game and that they have the controller which is what he did say you know and that a lot of quarterbacks complain about that um that they that sometimes coaches can err to that extent and when you look at shanahan one of the biggest things that you'll see receivers talk about brandon Ayuk or or george kittle and saying those first couple years with him can be rough because he wants to very methodically take you through a certain developmental process to make sure that you're really fluent in his offense before he really begins to trust you so what will happen is he errs on the side of players who will execute these things perfectly or near perfectly um, and he would rather bring in a Mohamed Sanu, who we all know is like a competent NFL football player, but may nowhere near be as um, skilled at this point as maybe some of the younger up-and-coming guys that they've had on their roster, like an Ayuk. But they, he knows. Although Sanu, I'm pretty sure, might be the highest-rated passer in NFL history. See, there you go. <laughs> Maybe they should put him in, but uh, you know, but uh, that type of situation, or you look at their running backs and like, you know, Shanahan very much veered towards guys like Jarek McKinnon and Tevin Coleman and Elijah Mitchell, all guys who were not were not known for processing speed and creativity for being able to set up blocks. They're more about I'm fast and just go to where the hole. We're telling you where the hole's gonna be. And if it's not there, just run fast into it. And and I'm simplifying it a little bit, but I'm pretty close to uh, to saying that that's that's really how that is compared to guys like Devonta Freeman, who Atlanta pretty much made him use during their best offensive year. Because you can see who Shanahan wanted, and I really am beginning to be at the point where I believe that sh that in five years or ten years we're going to hear some reports that Shanahan and John Lynch were having almost a cold war within their own program of talking about about who they selected as players because you know there is the idea early on that the 49ers were going to take Mac Jones and then late last minute they're saying no we tricked you it was actually Trey Lance all along and I wouldn't be surprised if it was John Lynch Shanahan wanted Jones yeah Shanahan wanted Jones you know I mean yeah and so you see that kind of thing and Shanahan has look his dad was a great coach but we've talked about this before and I've talked about some other podcasts his dad was also great with scheme very much about scheme rumored to be quite and you could see it quite dysfunctional about getting what he wanted if he wasn't getting along with his executives or if the player didn't do exactly how he wanted it to be and he the player could have played great and have one bad game and if it was the meaningful game like Jake Plummer in the NFC champ AFC championship where he threw interceptions even off of a pro bowl year he's going to be done you know if it, because philosophically he was like I don't think I'm going to be able to change this guy and he'd go to the point of taking out Plummer's best play out of the playbook the next year to you know kind of grease the skids you know, so I would be surprised, you know, the son 
observe the father, I wouldn't be surprised if the son's kind of like, I'm going to prove some points here, you know, to drive home. And the, the victim of this could be Trey Lance as a young player who needs time. But I think that what's happening here is that a lot of NFL teams probably look and go, well, if, you know, if Kyle Shanahan can get a un- Mr. Irrelevant to play so well in his offense and Trey Lance is they're just banging on how bad he is or they're not really giving him a chance. We must not want him because Shanahan's a genius and he can get anybody to do something well. Whereas it just might be he looks at Trey Lance and says, this guy has special athletic talents. He's probably going to lean on them a little bit more and go off structure at points where, you know, like a Brett Favre or, you know, you know, I'm trying to remember that Mike Holmgren would be going, no, no, no. And then like, you know, cheering yes when something good actually happened. Shanahan doesn't want any any quarterback to be anything remotely like that. Like I think a Matthew Stafford or a Kyle, Kyler Murray, if they played with him, he would have, he, we would have seen shades of this same type of thing without a strong hand basically telling Kyle, look, it's my way or just get out of here. Um, and, and, you know, you're not going to get that from the 49ers when you've had the success you've had. And Shanahan's done, done such a great job with the talent they have. And they're in that situation right now where you've got a good offensive line and great skill talent. You don't want a rookie. You want to, or, and if you do, you're going to take the, the guy who just follows things to the letter. And I think Purdy's a little bit better at that than what Lance is. And I saw, so I'm, I'm with you on the sentiment, but I think that's the background with it. And I think he's in danger of being a crushed can. Like if he doesn't get out of here, even if he gets out of here this year, he's going to need time to sit and he's going to need a coach who who understands that we're starting over. And hopefully Lance's confidence isn't crushed thinking, wow, I was with this great team and this great coach and this great coach is basically dealing with me like I'm a piece of trash in terms of what is, um, you know, in terms of my ability. And he's young enough to question himself like that. So, you know, if if you're going to take him, understand that the, the odds of him coming back from this may be, uh, you know, lower than what we've seen in the past with rehab projects. Uh, so I just wanted to say, um, I did look it up, and Mohamed Sanu is, in fact, the highest-rated passer in NFL history. <laughs> I wanted to make sure that the listeners were appropriately impressed with that uh, with that off-the-cuff call. I love it. Uh, seven of eight passing, 233 yards, four touchdowns, a perfect 158.3 was, passer rating. Was Walter Payton up there by any chance, or Kurt Warner? No, Payton had... Uh, Peyton had an interception. I'm pretty sure you can't have perfect okay. passer rating with it. Ah, uh, then we're we're we're, we're screwed. Um, okay. Are we sure? I just as an alternate hypothesis. Sure. I don't know that I haven't really seen anybody discussing this. Are we sure that um, Kyle Shanahan wasn't like seriously hurt by somebody named Trey in his life, and he's now just on a mission to like draft <laughs> every player named Trey and ruin their careers just as vengeance? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you know, I I like that theory very much, you know, Um, and if if my buddy Trey, who I grew up with, who, um, you know, can get within about five, you know, 50, you know, maybe 10, five, 10 yards of Kyle Shanahan, I would like to see him take it out on Kyle. But uh, but no, seriously, I don't know, man. It's it's a, you, you know, obviously he's highly successful and the odds are that they, you know, they know what 
they know what's going to fit their offense. And it's more about fit than it is talent. And I think he looks at, he looks at the fit and goes, why would you get me that player? He's not going to fit what we're doing. And I think there's been several situations like that where the scouting department probably likes a certain thing. And then the coaching staff is like, you got, you know, you got me a carrot. I wanted an eggplant, you know, and it's like, that's, that doesn't fit what we're making here, you know? And so, and I think that's fine, really, like as long as what you're doing works, you know, I, we used to joke that like Mike Shanahan would have benched Barry Sanders. Barry Sanders would have lasted one series yes. on the mid '90s Denver Broncos, and Shanahan would have been like, eh, "Nah, uh, you know, yeah. and not he what I'm looking for." Back to the bench. See, and he would have proven, and he would have proven the point by using Olandis Gary instead. And but the thing is, yeah. the Broncos' running game was successful, so like you know, if yeah. you're if you're good, you can get away with that. I I think there's a lot of coaches who think they are Kyle Shanahan, and they're you know like Josh McDaniel with the Denver Broncos. My scheme is unassailable. I'm going to like I'm going to piss off Jay Cutler and I'm going to run Brandon Marshall out of town and I'm going to like get rid of all my best players, but it doesn't matter because my scheme will carry us and he was wrong. Yeah. You can't do that. If you're Shanahan, I think Shanahan has earned a little bit of runway, a little bit of leeway to say okay, I want Purdy over Lance. Okay, fine. Like that's that's going to yeah. work for you. I just I think every coach thinks they're Kyle Shanahan. And really, right now, there's probably one Kyle Shanahan. There's there's one guy who I think has the track record where you can say, okay, worry about scheme over talent. Everybody else, you've got to be fitting your, your schemes to your talent. Yeah, I, I totally, that totally makes sense to me. And yeah, and here's Josh McDaniel getting Patriots retreads after last year. You know, he's going to, I, I'm waiting for him to say he can win with, uh, with uh, you know, Philip Dorsett over, uh, you know, Hunter Renfro, you know, so we'll, we'll see if that, that I want, plays out. Uh, that I want him to pull up uh, that that old Charlie Weiss line when he went to Notre Dame, and he's like, we're going to have a decided schematic advantage over all of our opponents, and then he just like <laughs> fell on his face. I'm just waiting for Josh McDaniels to talk about his decided schematic advantage. Yep, everybody gets, everybody has a good plan until they get punched in the face, you know, I guess that's, Absolutely. you know, so <laughs> let's talk about the Pats and Jets backfields then. So let's start with the Pats since we were already kind of the subject of the Pats tangentially here. Ezekiel Elliott, um, you know, Ramondre Stevenson, what are your thoughts on how you view them from a fantasy lens this year based on, you know, Elliot's signing? Where were you? Where are you now? Yeah, so um, you actually made a recent uh, really interesting point on our Football Guys staff chat the other day. And I always love, I mean, this is kind of why I like talking with you because um, I say, you know, I look at a lot of numbers. And if you look at a lot of numbers, you notice patterns. Like a lot of it, you just start to internalize unconsciously. Like this is what that should look like. And then when something doesn't look like that, you notice and it stands out to you. I'm not like watching film like you are. I watch football. I like watching football. I think I have, you know, a bit of an eye. I can kind of see who's good, who's bad. But I'm sure. not I'm not putting the jeweler's loop on my eye and like really digging into it. Um, but one of the things I always noticed, um, like when Dion Lewis was in New England, the dude had this amazing tendency to average five yards per carry with a long of 12, which <laughs> doesn't happen. Like yards yeah. per carry is, it's a measure of your longest run, basically. It's it's an outlier stat. Like most running backs, it's two yards, two yards, two yards, two yards, two yards, two yards, 60 yards. And that, you know, and, and you add up all of that and the average is like four and a half. But it's it's dominated, like it's, it's four long runs. And if you take away those four or five 
runs, they're below average for yards per carry. Um, and Lewis, like he had an entire year where he averaged 4.8 yards per carry with a long of 13. It's insane. You don't see that. Uh, and I, I compared to um, like Bilal Powell. There was a three-year span where Deion Lewis and Bilal Powell were fourth and fifth in yards per carry at about like 4.7. And if you removed all 25-yard runs from Deion Lewis's sample, he fell to about 4.6. And if wow. you removed all 25-yard runs from Bilal Powell's sample, he fell to like 4.0. And, and most running backs look like Bilal Powell. Nobody looked like Deion Lewis. And as a result, I'm seeing this, and I'm like, this is crazy. I was a huge Deion Lewis fan because I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And I love players who don't make any sense, um, who like, I just don't get it, but it's cool. And then you were talking um, recently when the Pats signed Ezekiel Elliott that, like, sure, Elliott doesn't have his burst anymore. He's not the explosive player that he once was. But New England has this history of production with players who just aren't that explosive. And it immediately reminded me of Deion Lewis and his 4.8 yards per carry with a long of 13, where, like, the way you do that is you're just constantly hitting four or five yard gains. It's insane the the consistency with which you have to be getting those medium gains. Um, and it's just such an incredibly valuable skill set to an NFL offense because it keeps you on schedule. Um, so when Elliott was signing, you know, everybody's like poo pooing what this means for Ramondre Stevenson's value. Elliott's washed up. Compare him to look at his yards per carry. Um, and I do think that this is one of those interesting things where in a lot of situations, I wouldn't really be interested that much in Ezekiel Elliott as a runner, but in New England and granted the 2023 New England Patriots are not the 2017 New England <laughs> Patriots. There are a few differences between them, notably Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski, but, um, New England does kind of have that history of taking these, these slower, not that explosive but just really smart um, backs who just see the field really well, who are just consistently going to make the right read and getting them to turn those two yard gains into four yard gains at a, at a consistent enough basis to just add a lot of value. Um, so I, I'm not saying that like I'm out on Ramondre Stevenson or anything. I'm just, I'm, I'm pretty open to the possibility that like maybe Ezekiel Elliott is actually something this year. I don't know. Yeah. I think there's a, I think there is a heightened range of possibility, not probability, but you know, where we think possible and go, well, yeah, it's possible that an asteroid might hit, you know, our house, you know, and then it's more like there's a, there's a hit, there's a thunderstorm coming through our neighborhood and saying there's a heightened possibility that hail might hit our house. You know, I would say that right now, Ezekiel Elliott is more in that hail possibility um, where you could see with, you know, Jason Wood had a great spotlight on Ramondre Stevenson in this offense talking about how there's, you know, over 22 year period, regardless of who was manning the scheme as the coach and coordinator under Bill Belichick. They average, I believe it was 467. I think that's the number. It's either 422 or 467. I don't remember, but it's over 400 rushing attempts a year over a 22-year sample. That tells you no matter what, they're going to run the ball, even if they're not throwing well. That's what they're, they emphasize doing. And so when you think about the whole New England split, you could see a scenario where both Stevenson and Elliott have 200 um, attempts. And then Stevenson is maybe slotted 
much higher in um, targets. Now, again, it's more of the possibility of hail, but we're we're not counting on it. You know, it's probably, I would say, maybe Elliot's more in the range of 120 to 150 carries as, as his maximum, you know. But it's still enough that you could see with his, you know, elite ability to pass protect. That's something that I think a lot of people miss out on. James White talked about it um, when Elliot was signed. My buddy Ryan Riddle, we were talking about it because he saw a tweet I mentioned about Elliot, and he goes, I think Elliot's still the best pass protector in the league. And, you know, if you're a if you're a former, you know, all pack 10 defensive end, and you've and you're also played linebacker and blitzed, you know, NFL players at a, with a bunch of different teams. You know who's a good blocker or not is, you know, at, at running back. So he's got a good eye for that stuff. And he's like, I still think he's he's the elite pass protector. They're gonna value that in New England. They're gonna value the guy like you said who who understands blocking schemes well enough that like Frank Gore, he's gonna get what they expect to get on that play. Um, it may not be a lot more, but it'll at least be that. Um, and, you know, the quickness is still there. The quickness, the short area quickness is what's important with running backs to at least be an NFL player and, and a reliable one. He's got that quickness. He's got great decision making. And he's going to play in a scheme that's mostly gap plays. They run a lot of just run behind a pulling guard or a lead fullback. And Elliott has spent so much time in more of a zone-oriented offense for so many years. Um, that's the harder offense. You've got to do more to set things up. You have a lot more going on behind the line of scrimmage as a runner. That's your responsibility as, as a decision-maker than a gap play, where most of that is on the responsibility of the offensive line to really make that one hole, and you just manipulate around that one crease where it's going to go you know, most of the time. So... I just see this as a scenario that there's a there is a there is a, um, a possible situation where if Ramondre Stevenson gets hurt and Elliott is the lead back, he could be a running back one in this offense, just like Damian Harris was two years ago. He could do that. Most likely, yeah, you're looking at Elliott is probably a, a running back three, um, maybe a high end run a, or a low end running back two, and then. And Stevenson, I still see as like a, a mid-range to low-end running back one, as how I would value them heading into this. But it's, I think it's um, I think it's a, a fantastic fit for him, and I, I I'm pleasantly surprised that they went with him over yeah, so Leonard looking... Fournette. <clears throat> yeah. For sure. <laughs> um, I was looking at uh, Football Guys projections just now. And it looks like um, Bob Henry has Elliott at 10 rush attempts a game, but has him at 11 rush attempts per game. Um, and they both have him at sub four yards per carry, but you know we both know yards per carry is pseudoscience. Yeah. Um, and so that could easily be you know, 12 attempts a game, four and a half yards per carry, something happens to Stevenson or Stevenson disappoints or maybe gets a few early fumbles. Um, you know, I feel like Elliot has is going to have a longer leash. Um, I think the coaching staff would probably be more tolerant of mistakes of him just because he has that long track record and and coaches love deferring to veteran experience on stuff like that. You know, I, I could easily imagine a scenario where he's getting 
14 attempts a game at four and a half yards per carry. And it's not, I mean, like, rookie sophomore year Ezekiel Elliott's not coming back. He's not walking back through that door. Um, but I feel like there, there's this mindset in fantasy that either you're a star or you have the potential to become a star or you're, you're pointless, you're worthless. What's the point? Um, and I, I hate how much fantasy players hate like role players, yeah. um, like good quality role players. And I think that's what Elliot is at this point. And usually at the end of the year, like when somebody's a surprise fantasy starter, it's usually those role players who just nobody wanted. I'm thinking like Theo Riddick for years in Detroit in yeah. PPR leagues. I loved grabbing Theo Riddick like late in the draft because nobody wanted him because there's no way Theo Riddick's a surprise. But the dude has a clearly defined role and he excels. Um, or, uh, or Jamal Williams last year on Detroit. I had a lot of Jamal Williams because he's he's not that sexy pick in your fantasy drafts. You, you're not drafting Jamal Williams thinking like, if things break right, he could be a top five running back. Yeah. Although, I mean, he got 17 touchdowns and he finished running back 12, but nobody really saw that coming. But um, I think like Ezekiel Elliott could be potentially this year's Jamal Williams. Yeah, I mean, when you think of the history of the Patriots, Antoine Smith was... Uh kind of a role player in Buffalo, um, never really broke through. Um, LeGarrette Blunt bounced around a few teams, and everybody thought, well, he's more of a fullback, or he's just not fast enough. He's just a big, lumbering dude who had great agility, great short area quickness, um, and was you know probably their best back for a couple of years. James White, as a role player, you t mentioned Deion Lewis, a guy that I always loved the story that um, oh, Dave Wanstead at Pitt, literally you know said i watched one play of Dion lewis in high school and basically told the recruiting staff to give him a scholarship um that was all he needed to see and i always think that's a fascinating thing from the standpoint of someone who watches a lot of football probably saw a play where he saw enough as a decision maker and and a mover and said i don't need to see anything else because if you can do those things in that situation I just happened on the right play. Let's give it. A, I, I'm I'm ready to go. But there are a lot of Corey Dillon, man. For two years before he got shipped off to New, or he wound up in New England, he did not have strong seasons compared to what he was doing. And everyone thought he had slowed down. And he then went into New England and just killed it for at least the first year. And then he had two top twenty fantasy seasons the year after that, where he wasn't quite as efficient or as productive, but still productive enough um you know that to show that he wasn't completely washed up so yeah i'm i'm interested in this one so what about the jets though because we've got you know obviously Brees hall just said recently i'm you know i i'm feeling pretty good my knee's still a little sore i'm not sure whether i can make certain cuts that i that i've been able to make so we'll see dalvin cook's in there you know coming off shoulder surgery where he's had multiple shoulder surgeries He's still young enough that if we're just talking about you, you know, the age cliff and the way that people traditionally talk about the age cliff, you know, he's still he's still young enough and coming off strong seasons. I heard somebody, Rich Samini, um, characterize him as having two down years, and I'm thinking, so you're going to take his peak year, and then you're going to look at two years with you know over 1,100 yards, and and strong production overall but you're going to call those down years i mean you're technically correct 
but in context of what's really going on there i think that 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 makes you know cook sound like he's he's basically in for the trash heap and it's all coming you know very quickly do you agree with that idea or are you thinking this could be a you know where do you see the distribution coming from here and what do you think of dalvin cook at this stage uh yeah i mean <clears throat> it's really hard to know anytime anybody's changing teams it's it's really hard to know to get because you know the nfl is a high entanglement sport um, it's hard to know how much of Dalvin Cook's success in Minnesota was Dalvin Cook. It's hard to know how much of his success was Minnesota, you know, like the right fit. Um, you know, a lot of times free agents disappoint because they look at a guy who is excelling in a good fit and they think, oh, he will equally excel here. And they're not really looking at. But with that said, um, you know, I think Dalvin Cook, again, is one of those, like, trust guys where coaches are going to feel much more comfortable trusting Dalvin Cook. Um, you know, he's kind of like a coaching security blanket uh, or, or you know, maybe an Aaron Rodgers security blanket. I don't know who was agitating for this move. I think it's quite plausible that it was Rodgers saying, I want this guy. And the coaching staff said, yes, sir, Mr. Rodgers. Absolutely, Mr. Rodgers. Um, so I... When he first signed, I think the instant reaction was like, all right, Hall is going to be the 1A, Cook is going to be the 1B. And now I think people are stepping back and thinking about it, and they're like, maybe Cook's the 1A and Hall is the 1B. I mean, it's a big contract to sign a guy, and it's a one-year contract too, so there's really no long-term investment. Um, if I were betting right now, if I were picking... Assuming both players stayed healthy, who would lead the Jets in touches? Um, I think it might be Cook. Uh, honestly, if I'm if I'm guessing right now, I mean it's not a very confident guess. It's closer to a coin flip. But um, now, also, well, I don't I don't know. I was about to say I don't know if Cook is more likely to get injured given his age. Um, but you know, Hall has the risk of compensatory injuries, and it's. I don't know. I'm I'm thinking about it, and as I think about it, I keep talking myself back and forth from one guy to the other. Um, you know, every time I make an argument for one, my, the little voice inside my brain goes, "Well, but what about?" Uh, it's a very complicated scenario. Uh, if anybody's writing off Cook's chances of leading the Jets this year, um, I think that's an error. Uh, I think the the most intellectually sound position at this point and it's not like a very sexy position for selling fantasy advice but the the most intellectually sound position is like we really can't know we're not privy to the information we need to make that call and anybody who feels confident one way or another i feel that confidence is probably misplaced yeah yeah for for me i'm i'm at a point where i'm probably the outlier where i've got cook at 24 among running backs and Hall at 37. Um, and the main rationale for me is I I love Brees Hall, the player, but the compensatory injury is a factor. The fact that he, and I've been saying this before he came out and said it, is that I don't fully trust certain cuts that I usually make. And if you watch, you know, you've watched his game, he is a LaShawn McCoy type of cutback runner who has a lot of stop-start dynamic cutting movement in his game. Dalvin Cook is the exact opposite of that. 
He does not make hard cuts most of the time. He has more of a curvy linear movement game or he his feet kind of pump like little pistons in terms of like small steps to adjust and turn his body and and it's a unique way of running but it doesn't involve a lot of hard cuts. So when I look at Hall coming off the injury, the way he plays, the signing of Cook, how good Cook has been over the past few years, at least from my assessment, I'm thinking that Aaron Rodgers knows, you know, he says, I'd like to play for a while, but I think the Jets know it's like, we might have three, four years out of a max. We need to make every year count. How do we make every year count with this? And to me, bringing in guys that Rodgers knows who can at least execute all the checks and offenses and um, or hot routes and different adjustments with coverage and know how he looks at coverage uh, in Allen, um, Lazard, and and Cobb, at least they can uh, help teach it in the wide receiver room in addition to execute it when they're healthy enough to play or be in there in situational play um, to help some of these young guys out or the guys who are on their way out, like probably Corey Davis, who will probably be on his way out you know, next year. Um, so you you have that in place and i think you know saying we trust Brees hall to come back and be Brees hall this year i don't think they can say that with a lot of confidence right now even though they maybe they don't want to say that right away until they've signed a player and i think the actions speak louder than the words that it's a one-year deal they're like we we know we're hoping hall will be ready next year and if he gets hurt again this year and he's not, well, we'll draft a guy. They'll probably draft a guy or get it a free agent who, you know, comes comes available. But Cook, the one-year deal, says to me, we'll ride you for what it's worth. We're going to get the most we can out of you, especially with the cost. Um, so that's where I would I would err. Not to say it's going to happen, but I I almost feel like this is a cautious ranking of cook at 24 even though many would say it's an aggressive one because if cook does turn out to be the 1a and and they really want to rest hall and and maybe ease him in cook could wind up being you know a mid-range running back two low one running back one the problem is is as hall starts to feel better does he start to take over late in the season? And now you're like, yeah, I drafted a, I drafted a high end running back too, who's useless for me down the stretch. Um, that, that's that's the danger with this entire scenario. Yeah, I think <clears throat> fantasy managers in general kind of underrate the importance of trust, or they assume that um, trust is based on the things that that they see or that are captured in the numbers you know like they'll say hey this running back's averaging 4.8 yards per carry this one's averaging 4.2 yards per carry why isn't the coaching staff giving it to the 4.8 guy um and in reality um trust at a coaching level is based on partly on things that we don't see things done in practice it's partly based on things we don't care about like you mentioned ezekiel elliott being one, the best pass protecting running back in the nfl you know that's a big part of earning trust um and a lot of it is emotional or not necessarily coldly rational it's not you would hope that it's always looking at like who is the best equipped to help us at this moment in time but of course something like dalvin cook's track record is going to come into play where they have that history of trust um 
so I project returners for football guys. And that I make the joke every year at this time, like every team's training camp reports at returners are like, you know, boring, trusted veteran who was like 28th in yards per return last year is back. But, um, you know, I'm sure the coaching staff is looking to upgrade their return core. And so like exciting, undrafted, undersized, super fast rookie is going to get some reps and maybe he can add some pop to the return game. And I'm like, spoilers, undrafted rookies not going to make the roster. Boring veteran return guy is going to get like 20 returns for like 6.2 yards per punt return. Um, and next year we're going to be doing this whole thing over again. Because the veteran guy has the trust, and and especially on special teams, like that's entirely a trust position. That's not at all about who is the best returner. That's about who do the coaches feel most comfortable with when the opposing punter trots onto the field. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it it makes it interesting. It makes it hard because we just don't know yeah. who people trust at any point, and we're just we're guessing. We're making our best guesses, and these are. Um, like the least educated guesses we have because there's no evidence you know trust is a mental state and it's hard to infer mental states um but i do think if you're not thinking about the role that trust plays um in in production you're you you've got a blind spot in your analysis yeah and i think that there are a few things we can look at on film that will help us uh, see where coaches would trust a player and where the player has shown that they're not trustworthy yet. And both, you know, you mentioned with returners. I mean, obviously, do they make the correct decision of when to fair catch a, uh, a punt or allow a kick to go into their end zone? Do they, do they fumble or muff kicks? Do they have that type of thing? And for football, for uh, running backs, when you're backed up in your own red area or you're in a, a down and distance situation, at a certain point of the game and do you follow the play as designed or do you try to bounce or cut back a play because you're going to try and lean on your speed and break something big or you're in a short yardage situation and you try to to run a certain cutback or follow a scheme when you had a very apparent opportunity to hit just a crease take on a defender and get the one yard you needed rather than trying to be super patient through crowded area to get five and end up getting dropped for two, you know a two-yard loss. There are a lot of game management situations like that with running backs that the most athletic, flashy guy doesn't understand. And that's why, like Kenyon Drake, they kept they brought in Frank Gore in Miami because Kenyon Drake didn't understand that. Frank Gore did, and it was so well put when they said, "When it's second and four, and I need four yards, I know Frank Gore is much more likely to get me the four yards." With, with the other guys, I'm worried that they might get me 50, but more times than not, they're going to get me negative three. Now we're in third and seven, or or we're in third and ten. Now we can't even run the ball. Now we our playbook has like basically contracted to like this small section of what we can do. The defense knows that, and it's much harder. And I think that those are things you can watch out for is when you watch players is do they keep your team on schedule when they get two yards? Was it a meaningful two yards? You, you know, in terms of like in the in the context of what the play design was about, or and were they backed up in their own red area where it's like they're trying to break the eighty, you know, the the ninety eight yard run, 
and they end up losing a yard or taking a safety or fumbling the ball because they tried to do something crazy. Um, you know, so those are things to consider with the trust standpoint. And, you know, speaking of trust, this kind of leads into the, the Ravens backfield because J.K. Dobbins had the hold in. You know, they unofficially called it a hold in, I think. Maybe it's officially was called that. But he was, the when asked about it, the coaches seem to be, you know, again, I'm reading into things that may not be there, but they seem kind of cheeky about it to me. Like, they, they talk to him every day. He's working off on the side. You know, he wants his money. They can't wait for him to get out there. We don't know when it's going to happen. Da 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 da. But I, if I were to put on the tinfoil hat, I kind of like the idea that, you know, this Holden was a good excuse to like not be on the field, and it gave the coaches some pressure taken off of them of saying, we wanted to arrest this guy anyway because he hasn't been healthy for a year and a half. Um, and he is our best backfield threat by far. And we don't mind giving him the star treatment. But if we tell this, if we tell the media we're giving J.K. Dobbins the star treatment, then we're all, they're all going to ask, he hasn't proven anything. How, why are you giving him that star treatment? And then what about other guys who, you know, that, that it's going to be this out, it's going to become this big deal that it shouldn't have to be. And instead, they can hide behind the hold-in. When Dobbins himself probably knows, there's no way until there's another CBA outside of my career lifespan that any of us at running back are going to get any money worth a damn compared to what we think we're going to, we should get. So, you know, all of this kind of worked out for everybody, you know, do you, do you buy into any of my tinfoil hat theory or do you just go, that's a nice tinfoil hat, you know, but leave that on the shelf. I don't know, man. The Ravens are on a heater. They're on like a 23-game preseason winning streak. I can't imagine they're uh, happy with Dobbins <laughs> risking that. That's a, that is the best point I could possibly hear to, to counter-argue that one there. That's a, that is a beautiful tinfoil hat that you've got there to compliment mine. <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> are you is he someone that you look at and go i like the value at, at adp or are you just more like yeah there's other players i would prefer it's really hard to say i mean so we've talked before that like your process is much more process based you know you are evaluating the process of the play you're not as concerned with the outcome of the play um you know my process like what i'm looking at I'm looking at outcomes. I'm looking at like the statistics that are generated from a play. Those are play outcomes. Um, and so I'm much more outcome based and Dobbins just has not given us many outcomes to work with. Like yeah. it's, it's kind of a blind spot. He has 226 career rush attempts. Uh, yeah, granted 5.9 career yards per carry, but a yards per carry is super big science. runs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And B uh, like Gus Edwards has 5.2 yards per carry in the same offense on more than twice as many attempts. So, you know, like something about that offense, and by something I mean Lamar Jackson, but quote-unquote something about that offense just makes it <laughs> extraordinarily friendly for running back production. Um, so I don't know. Dobbins is one of those guys where I'm like, I just don't have any special insight on him whatsoever just because I don't have enough data to work with. Um, but I do like, you know, obviously he had the draft capital. He was 
um, highly regarded coming in. I think he was your number two running back in that class behind Jonathan Taylor, yeah. if I recall correctly. Yeah, I think he's um, almost as good, if just as good, just different stuff. <clears throat> and he hasn't shown anything, obviously, to, to move us off of that opinion. He's just been hurt. Yeah. And, you know, injuries are a real thing. There's the joke that the best ability is availability. Um, I don't know how his injuries are random chance versus a pattern <clears throat> um he's probably at heightened injury risk but like you know the devil's in the details how much heightened is he like a 10 percent chance to get hurt this year or a 50 percent chance to get hurt this year because those are very very different things um so i like dobbins i've i've made some attempts to trade for him in a couple of my dynasty leagues over the years because you know i love my dented aluminum cans and um i've usually been rebuffed i think most of the people with dobbins on their roster at this point are true believers um i like him i'm i'm really eager to see more out of him um i've kind of been waiting a long time to see more out of him um but also i think baltimore is one of those situations where um it's not that it doesn't matter who they have at running back but i think they're going to be fine no matter who they're putting out at running back because lamar jackson is a force multiplier in the running game um and he i think a, a strong running quarterback like that possesses the ability to make the defense choose wrong no matter what they choose like whatever choice you make is wrong um so i don't have any dobbins on any of my teams i do have a lot of gus edwards because he was basically free um so saying i'm eager to see more from dobbins is almost a statement against interest because if dobbins does get hurt again that's probably very good for my fantasy teams but the saying is nobody cares about your fantasy teams even really me i would rather see good football than yeah. have a good fantasy team so I'm, I'm really curious to see what Dobbins does this year I'm the same way and I think as and I am a true Dobbins believer for sure um but that said I also think that he is one of the three to five riskiest players you could take in a draft this year just looking at his profile um you, you know but you know he's up there to me he's up there with Kadarius Tony another player I also like um and I'm holding firm on the idea. Now that doesn't mean that I'm picking all these players on the same team when I'm when I'm in a redraft scenario. I tend to like to tailor my risk to saying, all right, here's the one or two players that I'm going to embrace that within certain ranges, and depending on you know just depending on how I'm feeling about the risk and the situation that I'm in. But Dobbins is certainly a guy that if you're a if you're risk averse. And and you feel like you're going to need a fantasy analyst to hold your hand through email uh, on picking the player. Don't take them. Just you know, like <laughs> don't take them. You know, because you're gonna you're gonna love it when it works, but then you're going to be in that situation where you feel like you know you need your lucky binky to like help you out through every situation, and that's that's not that's not going to make you a better fantasy player. You know. It's a trust thing again. Yeah. Trust. Yeah. Super important. Yeah. I will say, perhaps you should be more willing to take Dobbins with some of these risky players, too, because you look at it mathematically. You get the law of large numbers. The more risky players you have, the more likely some yeah. of them hit and pay off. Um, you know, like high variance, people are always worried about consistency and variance. And, and it's a little bit misplaced because the reality is if you aggregate together a lot of high variance assets you wind up with a low variance portfolio yeah. because one person's spike will be offset by another person's trough you know oh, it, no. it 
I'm, I'm with you. I totally agree with that. And I've always been known for taking like high risks in a lot of leagues that I play in. I just like, I like to give people the options of saying, if you know the, the kind of drafter you are, and it's based on how you assess things good and bad, and you, and it turns out that you've had success being a, you know, moderate risk type of person. If that, if you've had success with that, I'm not going to try and change you with it though. I love the idea of, proposing that it's worth giving it a try i'm a high risk guy i i tend to be that way more times than not but i try to write about it in a way of saying you can be you can be the kook like me over here but i'm going to give you some other things here that you can consider as well um so you know lamar jackson the narrative since he's been at louisville to me has always been a theme of him been being written off he's not really going to fit in an nfl offense though he worked in Bobby Petrino's offense since he was a freshman, which was one of the better NFL offenses from a schematic standpoint, according to a lot of coaches that I've, I, you know, at various levels I've heard from who say, who just would scratch their head whenever they heard that. Um, you know, he's, after the, the, the Chargers playoff game, people wrote him off because they just saw how it worked out and didn't think he had it. Um, you know, then it's, He's always going to get hurt, you know, and he's gotten banged up here and there, but, um, you know, there's, well, then it's to the contract. He's, he, he's going to negotiate a contract by himself without representation. And, and it turns out that he, he acquitted himself pretty well, at least according to Joel Corey, the, uh, the, the, uh, an NFL agent who kind of reviewed the terms and said he acquitted himself quite well, um, doing what he did. Um, it just seems to me that, you know, obviously that's an extreme because how many quarterbacks have you ever heard in the history of the game negotiate their own contract in recent years? I, I, maybe there are some, but I don't think that's a very, it's pretty uncommon. So, but there's this, I think there's this public perception with him, Adam, where it just seems like every year people are going to doubt him at a higher level. And maybe some of that, you know, maybe some of that's race-based, you know, that there's still some lingering things with that. Maybe some of it is because he was seen as a primarily a runner more than a passer. Um, so there's maybe a little bit of that that was in there too. Um, but I also wonder if it's just at this point, whatever the reasons were, is it, is there, a, do you think there's such a thing that once you have a bias formed about, well, I think we know this, once there's a bias formed about something, it can be fairly ingrained and it's hard to dislodge people from that bias. And I feel like he's that way, but do you think that the, when we look at other players, that this kind of perception that we know if the guy has an, he's an outlier and there's a bias against him early in like say pre-draft in college, that you can pretty much bet that that's going to st stick with him throughout his NFL career. Yeah, so there's uh, some motivated reasoning. Um, people think that our like logic and reason and our entire brain, the whole purpose of reasoning and thinking is to find the truth. Um, but in reality, it's mostly the purpose of reasoning and, and thinking is to defend your beliefs. Um, and so like society as a whole, this, this process works great for society finding the truth because people who believe one thing will work really, really hard to defend that belief. And people who believe the opposite will work really, really hard to defend the belief. And then those beliefs clash. And in that clash, in that conflict, we're more likely to reach the true genuine belief. But on an individual level, 
um, it's not really a truth-seeking exercise. And this is called motivated reasoning. It's one of, one of the strongest um, psychological effects, easy to demonstrate, that once you believe something, most of the thoughts you think on that topic are going to be devoted to reinforcing that belief. And you see this, you know, people make jokes about preseason highlights where like, if a guy who you love has a rough preseason, you're like, ah, whatever, it's preseason, it doesn't matter. If a guy that you love has an amazing preseason, you're like, look, this is evidence that this guy is right. Great. You know, if a guy you hate has a rough preseason, you're like, oh, look, this is it. I told you guys. And that's all motivated reasoning where you're looking at the evidence in the way that most comports with your pre-existing beliefs. Um, and it's very, very hard to shake. I mean, it's there's studies on even being aware of these biases does not make you less susceptible to these biases. In fact, um, a lot of times the more educated and more intelligent you are, the more susceptible you are because you're more creative and better able to twist the facts to support your belief. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's true of everybody, not just Lamar Jackson. And I agree that he had this stigma coming in. Um, you know, he fell to the end of the first round given that college career. I think that's reflective of the stigma coming in. Um, and it's, it's largely stuck with him. Um, and I don't think he's... I mean, he's not a prototypical player. He's not, um, you know, Josh Allen is also a running quarterback, but I think Josh Allen is a very different quarterback than Lamar Jackson. And I don't think you could necessarily drop Lamar Jackson into the Bills offense and, nope. and he would thrive in exactly the same way. But, um, you know, Lamar Jackson is one of the most interesting and unique quarterbacks in the NFL. And um, the other topic we wanted to hit, I'm going to roll them in together, was what offenses could most could be record setting and outperform their ADP. And I think um, Baltimore did this in 2019. And, and, and I have a lot of respect for John Harbaugh in that he was willing to lean into their uniqueness and be an interesting offense that was just completely unlike any other offense in the league. And they had smashing record breaking success. Um, and I think if Baltimore is willing to do that again, like if Baltimore switches and passes on 60% of their plays and they become a high volume passing offense that also is leveraging Lamar Jackson's strengths in the running games, um, which like I was saying, he's a force multiplier, not just on his own runs, but on the running back runs. Um, I think they could be one of the hardest to defend offenses in the NFL, just because nobody would have experience. Nobody would have seen something like that. Um, and maybe it's not as sustainable in the way that like, Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes are sustainable. Maybe in a year or two, the NFL would figure out a counter to that. And then Baltimore has to go back to the drawing board and figure out a counter to the counter. And, and it's always a cat and mouse game. It's always cyclical. But I think this could be a year where the cycle swings towards Baltimore and Baltimore steals a march on the rest of the league. And um, so I'm really interested to see in what the Ravens do this year. I think there's a potential out there for basically every Baltimore Raven to just smash, demolish ADP. I think like Mark Andrews could set records at the tight end position. I think the Ravens could have like two double starting wide receivers in Bateman and Zay Flowers. Um, I think Lamar Jackson could be the number one fantasy football quarterback. Is this likely? Would I bet on it? No, of course. I'd take Mahomes over Lamar Jackson if I'm Me on the too. clock. I'm not drafting him as the first off the board, but the potential is there. The pieces are in place for this to be an offense that is giving us something that we just haven't seen before. Um, really, like at a sustained level, um, 
like we haven't seen a quarterback who's that deadly with the run throwing 60% of the time. We just haven't. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited to see what Baltimore does this year. Well, two thoughts. You know, I love the motivated reason rationale because it brought us back to the beginning of the show when I think of Kyle Shanahan and, and John Lynch, at least in my theory. I could see them both being that way um, in, in this approach and try, and the way they're approaching the draft. It's a continual battle to prove that they're right in one way or the other. Um, and then I'm totally with you about the Ravens. And schematically, I wouldn't be surprised somewhere down the line that the the Ravens decide that they're going to look at like Zach Kitley, the former um, West Western Kentucky coach, who's now at Texas Tech, and um, the Baylor offense that we saw, where you have the wide receivers out at the sidelines and you spread the field as far as you can, because with those receivers, if you can spread it out and have them working inside from a wide stance apart, that's a better fit than trying to work inside out. For Lamar, who doesn't have that laser arm of low trajectory, high velocity arm strength. He's more of a high trajectory arm strength type of player. So if you have a lot of guys working inside and work breaking inside, who have that quickness and speed across the middle of the field and can take a short pass a long way, well, defenses are going to get to a point where they're defending that wide open space. They're spread out and they're trying to defend underneath and someone's going to sneak behind them. And Lamar Jackson off of that play-action game, the ability to run, they're going to have to account for all that, and he just lofts the ball over to a Flowers, a Bateman, or a Beckham. And I think that we're going to see elements of that with this offense that leads to those types of big plays, whereas the last time they were really compacted inside and working inside out, but um, defenses were able to figure out a little bit there, and they just also didn't have the 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 offensive line got hurt the receivers kept getting hurt there are a lot of factors in play with that i like i think that mahomes i mean it's an easy thing to say but you look at what mahomes did last year he wasn't far from peyton manning and drew Brees in terms of their career best yardage totals and he and you think about the the players he's had like McCole Hardman, eh, you know, he's a he's a kind of a one-dimensional, two two-dimensional maybe kind of guy. Demarcus Robinson, there's a Sammy Watkins at the you know the mid tail end of his career. Um, the, it was basically Tyree Kill and and Travis Kelsey. It was that show. That was the two big pieces of the passing pie, and they gave slivers to everybody else. And I think right now we're at a point that if you look at um, uh, if there's a healthy Tony Sky Moore, if he continues to be the guy that they're saying that he's developing to being, um, you, you know, Marcus Valley Scantling to me is more of a Chris Conley plus type, you know, with with weirdo hands. But like you look at Justin Ross, um, Richie James, maybe Rishi Rice, Ju Justin Watson, even is kind of a, a low tier player. But if you look at some of these receivers, I think this is actually the strongest receiving core they've had, even if it's not like the biggest name-heavy receiving core. And I wouldn't be shocked if he spreads the ball a little more, they have a little more efficiency and success. And could he get up to 5,500 yards? Could he reach 50 touchdowns? I'm not betting on it, but his floor is so high that you can bet on it as the number one quarterback and feel like I'm also betting on an outlier season that's going to make him that much better than every other quarterback. And so I so I like that one. Uh, from a deeper end standpoint, 
I I don't love Derek Carr or or De- yeah Derek Carr as a as a player. I've just never really been in love with his game watching his film. But it's the second year in a row that I find myself thinking, you know, there he's better than people think. He's in a, a Saints offense where the offensive line was banged up last year, but there's a lot of talent there. And Matt Patanti talks about, hey, this this could be a top five line if everybody stays healthy and, and some of the young players grow into their own, That one of the young players that grows into their own that, that showed signs of doing that. And then you have Michael Thomas who, like, you know, Gene Bramble couldn't quit on Mark Ingram years ago. I can't quit on Michael Thomas. When a guy is that obsessive about being good as he is and he's been healthy all preseason and we saw what he did last year even still not being completely healthy until he got hurt again i i'm i'm betting on him i I don't care that's the risk i'll take as well i feel like where you can get him you're getting a a top 15 wide receiver and it's not like chris olave is a slouch they can both be top 15 receivers and if they are then you're looking at you know, Jawan Johnson and Jimmy Graham and Foster Moreau, who are all three good receiving tight ends, and, and determining how they use them schematically, they all three of them could have some, one of those three could wind up having a good year, either through yardage and volume or through just touchdowns, you know. And then, of course, Kamara and Rashid Shahid and what he did last year, they, Derek Carr could support maybe three if he, he, could, he might be able to support three really good fantasy players in the passing game, maybe four. And if he does that, he might be the New Orleans Saints might be the most shockingly good offense this season. Like, and the, the one that people go, that came out of nowhere. Like, how are they dominating at this level? Especially when you look at the division they're into. Like, I, you know, I think that that could be a big part of it as well. So those are three ones where I feel like schematic you know the offenses could buck the odds and you could see a lot of uh, fantasy wealth coming from those those schemes I'll say Mahomes uh, supporting cast this year uh, reminds me a lot of like the early 2010s Saints when they had like Jimmy Graham yes as like the guy the clear head and shoulders guy and that's Travis Kelsey but then the thing that the Saints always did really well is they had clearly defined role players with these very narrow roles that they just excelled in, that they, like, this was like, Devery Henderson, this is what you're going to get from Devery Henderson, and he's going to do awesome at it, and we're not going to ask him to do anything else, you know, because we've got all of these other guys who can do those other things. Um, I think they were, like, one of the most segregated passing games in terms of, like, these players are going to operate in this area, these players are going to operate in this area, we're not going to ask everyone to do everything. Um, and, And everybody had their role, and so as a result... Like, it wasn't a huge fantasy bonanza beyond Jimmy Graham. Um, Drew Brees is throwing for 5,000-plus yards and, like, maybe one or two good receiving fantasy targets as a receiver. But for the offense as a whole and for Drew Brees as a quarterback, it was just, you know, like, really perfection. It was nirvana for him. Um, And I could could totally see the Chiefs being something like that, where, like, you got Kelsey and Mahomes are locked in, record-breaking guys – and there's really nobody else who's like dominant beyond that. But there's a lot of guys who are good, like good offense for best ball, where everybody kind of has their blow up games in spots and everybody has their role and everybody gets a little bit of the pie. Um, so, yeah, I, I've thought that about Kansas City. I, I don't know that I'm really in on anyone 
other than Kelsey and Mahomes. Um, but I do think it's interesting to take a lot of flyers on that offense just to see, because I think there's a lot of a lot of guys who could, you know, if, if they find their perfect fit, um, who could be really interesting at their current ADP. Um, and then back to Lamar Jackson, I always thought, I mean, I don't know if this is like rooted in anything, but I always thought it would be so fun to have seen him with Mike Leach like the oh, Mike Leach yeah. not, don't care about anything doing like those crazy wide offensive line splits he used to do yeah. um and and like I see those offensive line splits and I'm like there's no way that could work in the NFL uh oh. maybe unless you have Lamar Jackson like yeah, right. maybe it could work with Lamar Jackson um I don't know he would find a way to make it work I I and and I'm not bad-mouthing John Harbaugh because again to his eternal credit like he is willing to do yeah. unconventional things if he thinks it's best for his team and that's rare among coaches i find um but like leach would have been you know may he rest in peace he would have been the ultimate unconventional yeah. out of the box thinker um and i i just would have been fascinated to see what he would have dreamed up if an nfl team would have a given him a chance and b given him lamar jackson for that chance see, see now i have three images from this podcast that just kind of hit my head this is just this is kind of my weird personality, but one is you standing in front of a wall of dented cans. Another one. Okay. The, another one. What was the other one that I was? Oh, Drew Brees with a cafeteria plate where none of his food is touching, but it's all fine food, you know, and it's like, it's like, you know, that's, and that's the representation of the Saints offense that he ran. And then Mike Leach and his welcome press conference out at the Baltimore Harbor, sailing in on a pirate ship, completely decked out as a pirate, including with the sash, the eye patch, the hat, and the and, and the the whole deal. You know, maybe and, and talking hook. about which AFC mascots would win a battle to the death. Yes, yes. So on that note, I think we're all excited about football from that standpoint. And if you're a you know, if you happen to be a photographer, you know, these were the types of ideas I gave our magazine. Um, at UGA in terms of doing some stuff for for article ideas. Sometimes we went through with it and they actually turned out pretty good. But like, I don't know if anybody's interested in, you know, Drew Brees is retired, Mike Leach is dead, we may rest in peace. And, you know, and I don't think, you know, Adam and I are, you know, we're, we're really appreciative of the audience we have, but I don't think either of us are going to be on the cover of a magazine and no one's going to know what the hell dented cans are about. So um, for your own enjoyment, uh, we appreciate that you're, that you're going to have a good chuckle about it and we'll see you next week. Thanks again and have a good one.